0: we're not careful, we can misuse the scriptures very quickly and misinterpret the scriptures very quickly. Welcome to the Ryan Holmes podcast, where our goal is to encourage Christian thinking and Christian living. This is episode 21. If you have been enjoying this podcast, would you please give it a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review? That will that will really help the uh, the boost help boost the podcast and um, boost boost its reach and visibility. Sorry, uh, and uh, you can also support the work that I'm doing and the podcast financially. By joining our Locals community, check out RyanHolmesPodcast.Locals.com and subscribe for just $5 a month. You'll get additional perks that are specific to our Locals community members. For example, our members get 10% off every single order uh, at our store, and that is wretchredeemed.com. RetchRedeemed.com. retchredeemed.com. Uh, so check that out and get some merch today and join up at the community for $5 a month and you'll get 10% off every single order. If you prefer video format, you can subscribe subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, and if you have any questions for me about uh, the podcast, today's episode, the podcast in general, faith, Jesus, the Bible, apologetics, whatever it might be, per request, uh, send an email to RyanHolmesPodcast at gmail.com. I will, uh, I'm going to link to everything in the show notes below so you don't have to go searching for all of that because I know it was a lot of information. So thank you um, for bearing with me through those announcements and I hope that you enjoy today's episode. And today's episode is all about you, the listener. You have sent in Well, some of you have sent in some questions for me, and I'm going to answer those questions today, and we're doing our very first Q&A episode, so I'm very excited to be answering some of your questions today, so thank you for those who sent them in, and what I'll do is just get right into the questions, and we will answer as many as we can in the time allotted. And uh, so let's just get right into it. First question is from David. Uh, David was wondering what type of Bible study method that I use, which was a very, good, very good question. So I had to really think this through. But um, and David, I, I hope that I'm answering your questions. Your question. I don't know if you had kind of specifics in mind, but I will just explain what my approach is to studying the Bible. Um, there's there is a, a very helpful resource that I use, and I have referenced it in the podcast before. It's called PreceptAustin.org. I'm sure many of you know know this uh, resource, but it's PreceptAustin.org. I will also link to this in the show notes below. Um, and if I fail to tell me, and I'll send it to you. But Precept Austin is not it's not one resource. It is it's a collection of resources. Uh, you can. You can go to this site and find just a plethora of uh, commentaries on the scriptures that uh, give kind of a lot of different uh, insights uh, into the Bible and into the books that into whatever book you might be studying. But for me personally, personally, when I get into studying a book or a passage or or anything like that, um, studying the Bible, I, I like to first of all know the historical background. I like to know. Kind of what what's what's happening um i like to know the cultural context and those those two that, that, that very much intertwines with the historical background because a lot of times we can take we can take our understanding today uh in the modern day and apply it and kind of insert it into the text and that is a poor way of studying the bible you should really understand the history understand the context the cultural context context that um the the book is being written in. Um, I like to know who is writing the book. Um, I like to know who the audience is. These are very important things to distinguish and will help you get a better understanding of the scripture. I like to know what the application is for the text um, or the interpretation. There, there could be multiple act, uh, applications, but I like to know what the interpretation is. Uh, I like I like to aim for the author's intent. That is, That is most important for me to figure out what the author was trying to communicate um, in the historical context, cultural context, with, with the people he's writing to. Um, these are, these are all super important things to understand about the text that you are studying. And I think Precept Austin really does help with all this. You can even even find graphs that give kind of overview themes of the whole book and, and chapters and, and, and different things like that, which are super, super helpful. These, these, Things that I mentioned, like the historical context, the cultural context, who's writing the audience, um, these, are, these are super important because if we're not careful, we can misuse the scriptures very quickly and misinterpret the scriptures very quickly. I'll give you a quick example of this. I recently heard a... Um, someone preaching from the pulpit, uh, talk about the, um, the passage in Joshua chapter 4 and verse 9. Uh, bear with me. I did not have my reference open here. So Joshua chapter 4 and verse 9. Now this is where Israel crossed the Jordan River. And um, in cha- uh, chapter 4 verse 9 says this, And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Now that last phrase, and they are there to this day, I heard that if you go back to this this geographical location, that you will find the monument um, there today, because the Bible says, and they are there to this day. This is why understanding these things when you're approaching studying the Bible is so important, because that was written at the time of the writing of this book. That's what the author was intending to say. That's what the author was saying. The author wasn't saying that they're there to this day today in 2022. So you could quickly and easily be misleading people into thinking that they would go there and find the monument set up today. But that was never the author's intent. That's not what the author was saying. So these things are important. Uh, These things are important because we can what has happened in the church is this kind of postmodern mindset, um, of subjective truth has infiltrated the church and I've experienced it personally. And I don't, maybe you have too, but an example of, you know, you're sitting in a Bible study, you read a passage and then you go around the circle and you ask what does this mean to you? Um, you know, the Bible is not up for private subjective, uh, truth interpretation we need to be focused on finding out what the interpretation is again there might be multiple applications but we need to understand what the author's intent was in studying the scriptures so we don't so we don't mislead people and we don't misuse the scriptures and misinterpret the scriptures it's all very important so i hope david that that does answer your question uh, well enough if you have any questions or other insights for me, anybody listening, uh, share it with me. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear how you study the Bible, your approach to it. Uh, David, I'd love to hear yours. Uh, you're the one who asked the question, but to anybody else, it would be great as well. Um, so I encourage you to reach out to me. Let me know. Question number two was from Sarah. Thank you for sending that in, Sarah. She was asking, "How can we know the Bible is trustworthy or reliable?" This is a great question, and there's a lot of ways that we can. We can know that the Bible is trustworthy, that it's accurate, that it's that it's reliable, uh, and I'll just sh- I'll share a few. The first one that, that comes to mind is historical accuracy. Uh, this is this is very apparent. Uh, I'll give uh, I referenced this example before, but I'll give this example again. In the Book of Acts, uh, Luke documents eighty four historical historically proven facts um, about the topography of that region common customs of the day, properly named ports, the depth of the water, uh, correct locations of cities, proper declensions of names, and the list goes on and on because there's 84 of them. So, so this is a great example of the historical accuracy of the scriptures. We can go back and test the places, the events, even the people that lived, and much more against the backdrop of actual history, which is amazing. And there, there really wouldn't be much degre- disagreement on whether the Bible is historically accurate. That's not re- really where, I guess, a lot of the debate would be. It would be more so over the miracle claims within these historical documents. So somebody like Luke, who is very detailed, very particular about um, about documenting history, also included miracles. So the question then remains, does, did these Writers just kind of go nuts for a second when they when they documented miracle claims in the same way that they documented historical facts, without embellishment, without um, over uh, spiritualizing or over hyping these miracle claims. They just wrote it plainly, like they would write a historical fact. Um, so we can we can look at the historical accuracy. And the, ne- the next thing we can look at is prophecy. There's approximately 2,500 total prophecies within Scripture, uh, 2,000 of which have already been fulfilled. Uh, there's a man named Hugh Ross, who is a um, an awesome Christian thinker and apologist. Uh, he has this to say um, about calculating the probability of prophecies. He says this, Since the probability for any one of these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance averages less than 1 in 10 figured very conservatively and since the prophecies are for the most part independent of one another the odds for all these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance without error is less than one in ten to the two thousandth power that is one with two thousand zeros written after it which is pretty astonishing now i'm gonna i'm gonna post a link in the show notes below uh, where Hugh, actually goes through he kind of uh highlights individual prophecies and and also calculates the the probability of that happening that particular prophecy happening so you can actually take a look at it look at it for yourself so again i will link to that in the show notes below i've got a lot of link lot a lot to link to today so i hope i get it all in there but um yeah, it's really, really fascinating. So, historical accuracy, prophecy, and uh, the next thing that comes to mind would be archaeology. Um, Hugh Ross also has has this to say: um, Archaeological digs in Israel over the past hundred years, however, have been silencing these critics. He was talking about critics, obviously. Artifact discovery by artifact discovery, making an even stronger case for the complete reliability and inerrancy of the Bible's historical narratives and geographical descriptions. One recent dig Hugh Ross discusses, um, he says this, they excavated a gatehouse and livestock pens in Timna, Israel. It is one of the uh, most arid and desolate parts of the Negev desert. The excavated gatehouse and livestock pens were part of one of the largest copper smelting camps in the Timna Valley. The dating of several recovered artifacts established that the camp supported a community of copper metal workers in the 10th century BC. This dating resolved a major historical controversy. While there is abundant historical evidence that the rich copper ore in the region had been mined since the 5th century, historians expressed considerable considerable skepticism about whether the mines and smelters were active during the reign of Israel's King Solomon. The new dating measurements remove that skepticism. The mines and smelting camps in the Timnut Valley indeed are the fabled King Solomon's mines. Closed quote. So we can look at uh, archaeology. We can also look finally at Jesus' affirmation. Jesus' affirmation. And I think this is one of the biggest affirmations that we can refer to. In John chapter 10, verse 35, uh, he claims that scripture cannot be broken. Matthew 5, 3, he refers to scripture as the commandment of God. Mark 7, 13, also, he also refers to it as the word of God. Matthew chapter 5, and verse 18, he says this, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus made many claims throughout his earthly ministry, claims about scripture, claims about himself. And how did he go and back up these claims? He rose again from the grave after death. Jesus' ministry and subsequently all that he said and did was ultimately affirmed in his resurrection. He proved who he was. And if he proved who he was, we can true we can truly trust what he said. And he affirmed scripture at the time, the law and the prophets as scripture. So I think, I think that we can trust Jesus' words on this one. So Sarah, I hope that gave you some things to consider and uh, think about and look at uh, when we're thinking of, when we're talking about the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible and scripture. The third question that I have was from Jordan uh thank you for sending that in Jordan uh He asks this when comparing Judaism and Christianity, why do Jews not believe that Jesus was the Messiah? This is a really really good question and um and a tough one because um yeah it's it's just uh there there can be a lot of tension there between uh uh the beliefs of of Jews and Christians and a lot of debate there but um there's a, a really good, in, my, in, in kind of researching this, uh, I'm going to pull a lot from an article that I found uh, from, from the website Jews for Jesus. And uh, there, there's essentially three primary reasons that um, that kind of overarching, broad kind of categories or reasons that, that Jews uh, might not uh, accept Jesus as the Messiah. And the first is cultural reasons, cultural reasons. And it's simply that they would say Jewish people don't believe in Jesus. That's kind of the, how it is. That's how it is. That's that's how it's been for a long time. Um, and here's a little excerpt from the article. It says this: Much of today's Jewish community headlines inclusivity as part of their worldview, but ironically, there is still one stigma that remains. For example, in a recent post from Hey Alma, the popular Jewish blog, boldly stated that the only thing the extremely diverse Jewish community could all agree on was that Jews for Jesus aren't. Jewish, it's it's common for them to suggest that Jesus is only for Gentiles, which which is rather ironic because Jesus was a Jewish man. Uh, but it really is it is a huge deal for a Jewish person to convert to Christianity because of the the cultural and um. um social social kind of consequences that come with that because they could be potentially ostracized from their families and communities and they may even be considered lost entirely um to the Jewish community so uh there's there's these cultural reasons uh number 2 would be historical reasons it, it, when i when i was looking into this this kind of this section here it was really shocking and saddening because there is a long history of violence and bloodshed between the church and the synagogue, which is, which is super heartbreaking. Um, Augustine said this, um, uh, he said this quote, Jews have been scattered throughout all nations as witnesses to their own sin and to our truth, scatter them abroad, take away their strength and bring them down. O Lord, this sentiment, um, Shockingly, is is not uncommon. and has not been common because uh, uncommon because it's it, it's echoed down throughout the centuries. Here's a, another little excerpt from that article that I mentioned. It says this: On May twenty seventh, ten ninety six, over six hundred Jewish people were massacred massacred in Mainz at the start of the first Crusade. In 1492, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella signed the order to banish the Jewish people from Spain unless they converted at sword point to Christianity. Even the Protestant reformer Martin Luther was unreserved in his venomous language calling the destruction of German Jewry. He says this, quote, first set fire to their synagogues, second I advise that their houses also be razed and destroyed, closed quote. Many historians historians maintain that 15 centuries of anti-Jewish sentiment laid the foundation of the worst atrocity that the Jewish people have ever endured, the Holocaust. Holocaust survivor Rose Price recalls when the camp guards struck her, they told her they were following Jesus' orders. Closed quote. If that doesn't make you shudder, I don't know. I don't know what would. It's, it's understandable that the Jewish community would see the Christian faith as anti-Jewish because of these types of Of abuses by Christians throughout history. Again, it's ironic because Jesus was a Jewish man, but I I would go as far to say professed Christians or alleged Christians because I honestly I don't believe someone who has been genuinely transformed by the gospel would engage in such atrocities. It might be possible, but it's really hard to believe that somebody fully understands the gospel and understands Jesus message and would engage in these certain things. Certainly certainly Christianity can be co-opted and used to justify abusive and evil behaviors. But the truth the truth is that none of this would be consistent with scripture and consistent with the teachings of Jesus. It just wouldn't. In fact, these are just just complete opposites. Um entirely so we can look at so, so that was the second reason historical reasons we looked at uh, what was it cultural reasons um, and the last would be religious reasons religious reasons this this could be probably maybe the most prominent reason why Jewish people would reject Christianity ultimately Judaism does not believe Jesus is the Messiah because they they don't believe that Jesus fulfilled the messianic Prophecies, for example, Isaiah chapter two and verse four, it speaks of the Messiah um, and kind of what will be the effects of the Messiah's coming. Uh, that nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. The Jewish perspective of the Messiah was a political Messiah, was one that would liberate Israel and and bring about political peace on earth. That's, that's what they were looking for. That's who they were looking for. Obviously Jesus did not fit this description. Um, Jesus himself said that he came to divide quote father against son and son against father mother against daughter and daughter against mother. The gospel, it does, it does separate. It does, um, it can cause division. It can be like we talked about last week, offensive, um, but um ultimately the 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 news of the gospel is good but these are things that can happen and this is what jesus said could happen or would happen um but i'd like to kind of go beyond the question just for a second uh and and address the reasons why jewish people are accepting jesus as the messiah and their personal savior i think it would be interesting to dis- the discussion to kind of bring that resolve and resolve and add that in at the end um because there is a movement of acceptance of Jesus. A Barna study uh, of Jewish millennials carried out in 2017 found that 20% of Jewish millennials surveyed responded that Jesus was God in human form who lived among people in the first century. This is super interesting and and actually quite exciting. Um, Just like non-Jewish believers as well, many Jewish believers have a personal encounter with God that changes their lives and causes them to embrace their faith and heritage they also recognized Jesus was born to Jewish parents raised in a Jewish home in Israel observed the Torah and taught the nation of Israel as a rabbi They realized that his teachings were not an attack on Judaism, but rather an authoritative intelligent interpretation of the Torah and a critique of a religious system that had been corrupted in that day. They realized that he also also claimed that he did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. And they also recognized the messianic prophecies that have been fulfilled by Jesus and not, not simply just choosing selective passages. For example, Jesus would, would first need to suffer and die an atoning death. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 8, it says this, he was cut off out of the land of the living, mm-hmm. stricken for the transgression of my people. So Jordan, that was a really good question. And uh, and I hope that that kind of gave you a little bit of, or a few reasons why, um, the cultural reasons, historical reasons and religious reasons as to why Jesus, um, why the Jewish community may not accept Jesus as their, as their Messiah. Number four um, is uh, from Cody. So Cody, thank you for sending in this question. And the question is, how do we understand the balance between free will and God's sovereignty? Thank you for this question, Cody. This is a tough one. <laughs> um, but um, I, I don't think that we will ever fully and completely understand the relationship between our free will in God's sovereignty. It doesn't mean that that God hasn't given us some understanding because he has which which I'm very thankful for um, but it, it doesn't and it doesn't mean that we don't try. It's not a cop-out answer because I'm, I'm going to talk about it right now but I've, I've wrestled with this. I, I truly have after after going to Bible college and, and, and heading into a ministry um, a ministry that i i never thought that i would leave uh, i thought at least not for a while i thought i could even potentially um plan a church out of that ministry so there was there was a long term kind of um hope there and and leaving that kind of really really shook things up for myself and my my wife and i and and not just that but exiting a particular circle where you have connections and um community and just kind of feeling, feeling alone with, without options, uh, not knowing what God wants from you. Um, even after believing that you do have a a specific call, it's tough. And I I do understand that. And I've really had to wrestle with that. Um, there are specific things in scripture about God's will, uh, whether, whether we don't know, what God's will is for our life or not, there, there are some things that are that are clearly laid out for us in scriptures. So some examples, um, it is God's will or desire that, that people be saved. First Timothy chapter three, two, verse three through four says, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's God's desire. It is God's will that, that we are Thankful people. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 18 says this, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is God's will for you and I to be sanctified. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. It is God's desire that you be equipped to do his will. Hebrews chapter 13 in verses 20 through 21 says this, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now I think there, I think there are non specifics about God's will as well. So, for example, will God tell you what to eat today? No. Will God tell you what route to to take to work today? No. Does God tell you what to do on a day-to-day basis? No. A lot of times we rely on God to clearly spell out something before we will actually do that thing we look for signs that seem to d- direct us one way or the other uh, i'm not sure that i'm not sure that that's how god operates and i'm not sure that that that's how god intended th- intended things to operate after all he has given you and me certain cognitive faculties that enable us to make decisions he's given us a mind to rationally affirm knowledge claims sometimes we can rely on, on waiting for God so much that we actually never end up doing anything. God has wired you in a certain way. He has gifted you in a certain way that is specific to you. Um, and he's given you abilities to be used for his glory. I, I forget who said it. It was some well-known guy, but maybe somebody can tell me who it was. But it, it, he said something like this along the lines of, love God and do as you please. Love God and do as you please. If you are walking with God, if you're if you're spending time in the scriptures, if you're praying, if you're listening to solid biblical preaching, if you're being obedient to scripture, it is more likely than not that your heart will be in tune with God's heart and your decisions in tune with God's desire for you. Now, it is a good thing to be patient. It is a good thing to wait, but we can we can find this out as well by consistently walking with God. Sometimes we we may just have to step out and do things. It's not like God is going to be somehow shocked and surprised by a decision you'll make. No, he, he knows what you're going to do. Um, I find it kind of funny in, in Bible college whenever somebody, believing that they are not called to ministry, leave Bible college and go home, um, or may even they leave for the wrong reasons, and they they don't want anything to do with the church or Christianity or, any, or anything like that. People will, are, are quick to say that this person, this individual, is stepping out of God's will, as if God is is frantically scrambling to figure out the the, the path for this individual's life. No, he's not. He's not surprised by the decision that was made. Um, sometimes he will close that door. Sometimes he will leave the door open. And that that may be how he tells you what his will is, what his path for you is. In some sense, we have to live our lives. We have to use the skills that God has given us and by faith, step out and do things for him. Now, I'm not sure, Cody, if you wanted me to address this next portion, but I'm going to. Um, I won't Dive too deep into the scriptural discuss, discussion about man's will versus God's uh, predestination of all things. I, I do want to, but for the sake of time, um, I'll probably have to save that for its own episode. And and I think I want to do that. I want I want to devote uh, an episode to that. But but I'm I'm not a Calvinist. I have really c- close friends that are, and and I love them, and we're yeah we're great friends, and we'll disagree on things, and we'll still be great friends. Um, but I I do. Greatly appreciate the Reformed tradition, and I listen to a lot of Reformed guys, and they have really good stuff. Uh, but I wouldn't consider myself one. And I'll give three. I'll give three main reasons why. And this is kind of in response to exhaustive divine determinism. Um, I know there there are different perspectives within Calvinism, but I'm responding to this one mostly because I think I feel like this is kind of like the main one that people think of when they think of. Calvinism. Um, So exhaustive divine determinism would be like everything is determined down to our very thoughts and actions and our beliefs. So these are kind of the three main reasons why I would would disagree with this perspective. So if God has determined all things down to our thoughts and actions, then rational thought is not possible and does not exist. So rationally affirming knowledge claims would would not be possible. If all of our thoughts, our actions, and our beliefs have been predetermined, then we did not come to our current position based on looking at competing ideas and coming to a conclusion based on what we believe to be the best option. Um, I hope you understand what, it, what I hope you I hope you're tracking tracking with me on this. Um, so rationality, rationally uh, rationally affirming knowledge claims would not be possible. I do believe that rationality exists. I do believe that it's possible to rationally affirm knowledge claims. I do believe it's possible to look at look at competing ideas and choose um, the best option uh, that you believe lines up with reality best. Um, and so I don't believe that God has predetermined all things or. Pre, yeah, predetermined all things down to our thoughts and actions. Um, but honestly, you, 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 I would even say you couldn't say that your position is correct if God did determine all things down to our thoughts and our actions. If it was predetermined and you had no choice to choose otherwise, you could never say that your view is true because you had no choice or ability to choose another option. I hope that makes sense. The second reason would be that if God has determined all things down to our thoughts and actions, that would make God the author of evil. He would have predetermined all of our evil and sinful actions. So that is has serious implication, implications on the character and nature of God. The last one would be is that if God has determined all things down to our thoughts and our actions, then, then he would not be an all-loving God. His love would be limited or finite. If he has determined our our decisions whether to accept Jesus or not, that would mean that he has determined some to an eternal hell, and there's no choice to choose otherwise. So from the moment of birth, they're determined to be in hell. Um, This would mean that his love extends to those he has predestined to life in Christ, and his love does not extend to those he has predetermined to eternal judgment. This means that God's love is limited. Now, one can try to distinguish between God's common grace to all people and his specific or special grace to the ones he has chosen to salvation. Um, I feel like this would potentially skirt around the issue, uh, but... But at the end of the day, God's love would still not extend to all. This, this means that it would be limited or finite. And therefore, God would not be an all-loving God. And this is super critical. By definition, God would pos- possess all the omni-attributes. He would he would be perfect. He would not be limited in any way. So omni- om- omnipotence, om- omnipresence, uh, omniscience, and omnibenevolence or, or all-loving if our theology diminishes one of God's omni attributes then we should be quick to reevaluate it and potentially toss it away so those are three main reasons and i actually do hope to have an entire episode dedicated to this um and maybe even have someone on to talk about it but but we will see lord willing it'll happen but we'll see we'll see how that goes uh well i i i don't really have much time for any more <laughs> we made it through four questions um so I appreciate all those who sent a question in, and I will do my best to get more questions in on the next Q and A episode. So, so be watching for that. Stay tuned for that. And if you didn't get your question in this week, then then be ready for the next Q and A episode, maybe in a month's time or so. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see how the response is to this one. But that'll be it for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you have any questions for me, thoughts, comments, even topics you'd like me to discuss on the podcast, please send me an email to ryanholmspodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to visit ryanholmspodcast.locals.com to join our community. I appreciate any support. And if you're on the YouTube, like, comment, subscribe, hit the bell, and ultimately please share this podcast and let's encourage others to think about their faith and live it out. See you next week.